Hello, and thank you for listening to The History of World War II Podcast, Episode 359, All Good Things Must Come to an End. With the success of the Saturday Night Club Run on November 9th that saw the destruction of an entire Axis convoy heading for Rommel, the Italians figured out that they would either have to give up completely, which they could not do, or focus on the source of their troubles, which was, of course, Malta. If they could reduce the island's port facilities, then hopefully that would go a long way in stopping the ships or subs based there from harassing shipping coming from the Italian mainland. And if that could be accomplished, then Rommel was well on his way to taking over Egypt. But first things first, Malta. With this new resolve established, the Italians increased their air raids over the various ports, but most certainly Grand Harbor. In fact, one raid came before the Saturday night club run, as Axis shipping had already been suffering for some time. That had been on October 14th, Tommy Thompson's 21st birthday. But it was not to be a day of fun nor celebration. First, Tommy and his squadron were awakened as the early morning raid was on its way. The way the first response had evolved up to this point, four planes, two groups of two, would take off. Everyone else would be on standby. The Allied pilots got to the Italians before they reached the Grand Harbor, and from there a mixed-up series of dogfights ensued. The Italians had the Maquis 202 fighter, which was better than what the British pilots had, so cool heads were needed. Obviously, Dennis Barnwell, Tommy Thompson's number two, decided on a different approach. Trying to bluff his opponent, he charged in, ignoring the faster speed of the enemy plane. Tommy quickly lost sight of his partner, but seconds later, he was relieved when he heard Danny say over the radio, Got one! This was great news, as the Italians normally turned away after their first few losses. And yet, within seconds of Dennis's exclamation, his second radio message was less joyous, stating, Bailing out, cut engine, am coming down in the sea. Tommy figured either the Italian fighter pilot spent his last seconds on this earth firing at Dennis's plane, or another plane had taken advantage of Dennis's focus on that one plane. It wasn't long before the other Italian fighters were gone, which left the three Allied pilots to begin looking for Dennis in the waters below. They were soon joined by planes from 249 and 185 squadrons. And probably because of the raid and the loss of Dennis's plane, just as one of the newly arrived hurricanes showed up, it took a shot at Tommy as he was over the Grand Harbor. Fortunately, this man missed and later apologized to Tommy. Then he found out it was Tommy's birthday, so he bought him a drink or three. Dennis Barnwell was never found. Tommy decided it was a birthday best forgotten. Not that anyone else on Malta was having a good time of it. Though the Germans had left, the Italians had put in enough appearances to still stress everyone out. A bomb was a bomb, whether it was dropped by a professional or someone just hoping to get the hell out of there. The explosion was the same. So by November, the stress suffered by the military staff, their supporters, and the civilians was equal to when the Germans were there. Another problem for those on Malta, but certainly the pilots and various AA gun crews, 
was the rise of the catarrhal jaundice cases. This illness is a virus that affects the liver and can cause bile pigments in the blood. The results are feeling depressed, drowsy, and irritated. Needless to say, part of the cure was complete bed rest, something that's a little bit difficult to do during a war. In fact, by November, telegraphist air gunner, or TAG, Nat Gold, was just getting over his own bout. It may be remembered that, back in July, his plane was the last on a bombing run, and as such, his aircraft received a lot of attention from the guns below. Still, his pilot, inexperienced and just trying to stay alive, dropped his torpedo, and everybody on board was shocked when it struck true. The only problem was, by then, their airplane was over the target. Hence, the huge explosion that followed lifted their plane and threw it higher into the sky. Somehow, the pilot got things back under control, and Nat was guessing that this would be the worst thing that he experienced in the war. Then came his illness. Nat was forced to reassess the worst thing in the world to his current pain. Nat was sent to Imtarfa to recuperate, or at the very least, to be out of the way of the fighting men. To Nat's shock, hundreds more were already there, and they were already suffering in this stuffed structure. In fact, the nurses, there were only a few available for duty, had to teach some of the less sick men how to perform certain tests on themselves and others. That, along with constantly changing bandages, kept the healing men rather busy. In time, Nat and many others got better and returned to how far, but looking around, Nat already missed the hospital. It was cleaner and in better shape. Their hut had no windows. They had long since been blown out by exploding bombs, and the many holes in the walls made the structure more like a gazebo than a hut. But as it was November, and the windowless and pockmarked hut allowed all the cold air in, Nat used his knowledge from his civilian life to build a device that could sustain an electric fire. It worked. That was the good news, that everyone gathered around it, almost pushing Nat out of his bed each night. Well, that was the bad news. This podcast could not exist without the help of sponsors like Yahoo Finance. When it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. Now, you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses, Yahoo Finance. I've stressed this in my podcast about command and control, which is exactly what Yahoo Finance is. You can see all your investments and retirement accounts in one place. You can consolidate your views from multiple accounts into one hub and access the expert analysis you need to tend to your entire portfolio with confidence. Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, and they've worked things out. You've got the tools you need right at your fingertips. I open up my Yahoo Finance, and within seconds, I can see how my stocks and investments are doing. And basically, investing is all about growth. And in order to grow, you need to know what's going on. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. 
You may recall it was the Australian flight commander, Titch Whiteley, who had given Warby, or Adrian Warburton, a second and even third chance. And true enough, Warby morphed into an incredible pilot, photographer, and fighter. But Titch had been transferred out back in June, and as he had been a stickler for his men to be in their uniforms proper, Warby's appearance went downhill drastically after Titch left. Warby soon became instantly recognizable to all because he wore the same thing over and over. His gray flannel slacks, suede desert boots, army blouse, and his battered and oil-stained cap. This last part was because Warby would rather spend time with the ground crews than other pilots. Well, them and Christina Ratcliffe. But demonstrating, again, how invaluable Warby's contributions were, and how fortunate for all that Titch had taken Warby under his wing, back in June, 69 Squadron had been tasked with taking pictures of the entire North African coast, from Benghazi to Tripoli. Considering it was 250 miles, the squadron was expected to need at least a week and take at least 12 flights, which is when Warby stepped up and said, I got this. Getting into his plane early one morning, his crew hoped his luck was still holding out. They took off. To be clear, it was one plane, Warby's plane, that took off. Getting started, the assignment was easy enough, as long as no Axis planes showed up behind them, but soon, that's exactly what happened. Warby turned north, heading for the sea, waiting for the pilots behind him to get bored chasing him and turn around, which is when Warby turned around, picked up where he left off, and started taking photos again. In time, the fighters would return to harass Warby's plane. They would do this four times. But again, each time, he returned to the task at hand. In the end, not only did Warby photograph the entire 250-mile coastline, but he did so with no mistakes, and all in one day. Soon after, Warby was sent to Taranto to take reconnaissance photos. But during the picture-taking, one of his cameras went down. Warby compensated by passing over the target several more times, just to be safe. And each time, the AA guns fired up at him, which Warby ignored. Besides getting the brass the best photos they'd ever seen, occasionally Warby would have to fire back at a pursuing plane and take out an Italian reconnaissance plane. This he did twice, and at the end of the summer, Warby took out, God only knows how, a Maquis 200 fighter. By now, Warby was an ace with eight kills, but all he cared about was a loose interpretation of the rules, flying, taking pictures, and Christina though who can tell how he would have prioritized that list. But there was a downside to all this activity, even for a young man like Warby. By the end of September, he had 155 operational flights, and though he had earned the DFC twice, the demanding schedule showed on his face. First, Warby responded by taking 30 aspirin tablets a day. This was probably without a doctor's recommendation, and who knew if it was helping or not, but Warby thought it was. But if war teaches us anything, it's never good to have one person to become indispensable. Hence, Warby would leave by October, the last to do so from 431 flight. 
Warby was heading for Egypt for some rest, proud of what he had accomplished. Not that his story is over, nor would he be the last to leave Malta near the end of 1941. Another familiar name about to leave Malta was pilot Tom Neal on the night shift. Now a part of 249 Squadron, Tom and his co-pilots were serving the war effort by acting as fighter bombers, raising hell for those on Sicily when they could. Sadly, his run-in with and tirade at Air Marshal Arthur Tedder about getting some Spitfires to Malta resulted in nothing. By this point, the men flying the planes had shot down just over 200 enemy aircraft. Just imagine what they could have done with Spitfires. So, where were they, and why were they not here? The pilots and ground crews were working miracles. Hell, miracles had become a common occurrence. But the planes themselves did not have the ability to buck up after a speech when it was needed. No, they simply got older and more used up. We have already seen several pilots having to bail out as their engines locked up. Tom, again risking his freedom and rank, went to complain again to Hugh Pugh Lloyd. But all for naught. Lloyd went on about it was the man that mattered, not the plane. Tom stood there, taking in this latest helping of sophistry from Lloyd, and he almost punched his superior in the face. Yeah, it was time to put in a request for a transfer. During their argument, Tom said he knew for a fact that Spitfires were so plentiful back home that they were coming out of people's ears, which was basically true. Between November 1940 and the end of 1941, 8,442 hurricanes were built. Also during that same time, 11,797 Spitfires were built. And during this time, the planes either stayed home or went to the Middle East or the Mediterranean. So why were there none on Malta? The answer to this question is layered, as are most answers to complicated problems. Without caring about prioritizing the list or hurting anyone's ego, here are some of the main reasons. First, and Tom Neal certainly believed this, the brass back home where the planes were made could simply walk into another room and talk to the right people who made the decisions where the planes were going, versus a commander out in Asia or the Mediterranean. And these men were older than Tom who suspected that they were just worried about protecting themselves versus Malta, which was true enough and always will be. Another way to think of it is proximity equals influence. Which circles back to Air Commander Hugh Pugh Lloyd, who should have been engaged in his own warfare with London about getting Malta some damn spitfires. But as his background was bombers, he did not appreciate what the pilots were up against. In fact, the majority of Hugh Pugh's requests back home were for bombers, not fighters. At least General Dobby, the former man in charge, had asked for fighters, but that had been a part of the problem as well. In his messages, the word fighters was used, not spitfires. So it could be argued that London did not know that Malta wanted the most modern fighter to hand. Then there's the perspective of the War Cabinet to consider. Yes, the Battle of Britain had been won by the beginning of 1941, 
but it had been a close-run thing, and the threat probably seemed not over yet. As for the Battle of the Atlantic, the Allies were certainly losing that in 1941, and thus London's focus could be excused for being closer to home. And as the Germans were gone by late September of 1941, perhaps London thought Malta would be fine with the ever-increasing, obsolete hurricanes. Yes, they had been stellar planes, but they were also a product of the 1930s and had quit evolving in 1940, whereas the Spitfire was just getting started in its evolution. If an example is needed, the hurricanes only went up to Mark II, whereas the Spitfire would see 24 varieties by 1947. Which all means, if the Germans returned to the Mediterranean, or if the Italians got their act together, Malta would need Spitfires, not excuses. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M. Dot com and check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. The exodus of names we have become familiar with continued. Next up was Tubby Crawford of The Upholder. However, for him, it was bittersweet news. Yes, he was leaving behind a close-knit circle of friends, War will do that, but he was heading back home to start his training as a commanding officer. Of course, that also meant saying goodbye, or at least see you later, to Margaret Lewis, as they had become very close over the year. But this is not the end of their story. Then there was the goodbye to his commander, Wanklin. The latter would write, in regards to Tubby, he has done marvelous work and is a good friend. And in that sentence, so much was said. As for Wanks, he found out that he was to be awarded the Victoria Cross, the highest British award for gallantry. When he came back from his latest sortie and fell asleep in his bed, Shrimp Simpson, in overall command of the Malta-based subs, had someone sneak in and remove his tunic and sew on the VC ribbon onto the breast. Wanks woke up, put on his uniform, went to breakfast, and did not even notice the alteration. Someone had to point it out to him, to which Winks said in a very dangerous voice, this prank is not funny. Which is when Shrimp Simpson stepped in and said, oh, it's no joke. Congratulations. The BBC made much of the award, the first for a submariner. But when asked what quality was most needed in submarine warfare, Wanks replied, Mmm, that's a nasty one. So I will use a long word, imperturbability. How right he was, for it takes imperturbability to know that each time a group of subs goes out, 
one of them will probably not make it back. Indeed, Admiral Cunningham had lost five U-class subs that year, and those that died rarely did so quickly. Whether it was a depth charge or a mine, there would be an explosion, and the lucky ones would die instantly, whereas the rest had to wait for death to come to them, either in the form of drowning or asphyxiation. As mentioned last time, the forces of Admiral Cunningham had done an admirable job against the Axis shipping in 1941. What between the fleet air arm, the RAF, newly arrived Force K, and the newly designated 10th Flotilla, the Axis had lost 77% of supplies meant for Rommel in November alone. And this paid dividends along the North African coast. When Operation Crusader was launched on November 18th, see episodes 165 to 177, Rommel was pushed back 500 miles in six weeks' time. Yes, the Commonwealth troops had done well, but it was mostly Rommel lacking fuel, food, ammunition, and various arms that made it possible. Even a blind man could see that. And Hitler was far from being blind. Yes, he screwed up royally at Dunkirk, and when invading Russia, he would split his forces instead of focusing on Moscow, but he figured out Rommel's problem pretty quickly. As Rommel and the Nazi forces under him were clearly superior to the Allied defenders, so Hitler thought, North Africa, Egypt, and the Middle East was as good as in German hands, should Rommel be given what he needed. And hurting that was Malta. So Malta had to be hurt back. Since it was November, Hitler personally ordered Luftflotte II, one of the three Luftwaffe air armies taking on the Russians, to head back to Sicily, not North Africa, because that was not the problem. If anything, North Africa was the solution. The Mediterranean had to become an Axis watering hole, so Malta had to be brought low. Furthermore, all German forces in the South were to be put under airfield marshal Albert Kesselring. As we have seen, the Italians were none too happy about this, but Mussolini and Foreign Minister Count Ciano had nothing to defend their poor showings with. The Germans were now in charge. All this was bad enough for Malta, Cunningham, and C&C Auchinleck, the new commander in North Africa. But it was about to get worse. Not only was Luftflotte II coming back, but Hitler also ordered half of his Atlantic subs to come into the Mediterranean. This sent Admiral Karl Donitz, the Supreme Commander of the Navy, through the roof with anger. He and his subs had brought Britain to her knees, starving her half to death. They couldn't take much more, and now all that work was about to be undone. But no one said no to Hitler. Malta was to be bombed, starved, and only then invaded. Clearly, what Admiral Cunningham needed was more punching power, and what hits harder than planes when they are carrying either bombs or torpedoes. When all else fails, the desperate rely on the old adage, fight fire with fire. If the Germans wanted to bring in more planes, so too would the defenders. Of course, the Mediterranean had changed much in 1941. Greece and Crete now belonged to the Axis, which affected Cunningham whenever his ships left Alexandria. 
and until Operation Crusader was launched and succeeded, Egypt was being threatened by Rommel, and could become so again. On November 10th, the carrier HMS Ark Royal, escorted by Admiral Somerville's Force H, delivered more planes to Malta. No, they were not Spitfires. After that, the ships turned around to head for Gibraltar. And as word had gotten around that German subs were in the area, off the Spanish coast, Somerville reminded Force H to be wary. Either way, U-Boat 81, commanded by Friedrich Guggenberger, was already in the area, having left Brest, France, and was making his way to the Italian coastline. As the ships of Force H approached the sub's position, Guggenberger simply waited for the best target of all, a carrier to come to him. On November 13th, the 27,720-ton Ark Royal sailed on, having sent off the latest batch of planes for Malta. As it was with Force H, the battleships HMS Malaya, the carrier HMS Argus, the cruiser HMS Hermione, and seven destroyers, perhaps the commander of the Ark Royal, Captain Loben Mond, was a bit too relaxed. The weather was clear that day, and at 3.25 p.m., the Ark Royal had 12 of its planes aloft in training, while another 14 were waiting to land. A typical day. Then, at 3.40 p.m., one of the escort's sonar operators on the destroyer Legion picked up an unidentified sound. But as there were so many British ships around, he assumed it was one of them and got on with his day. Sixty seconds later, with the carrier only 30 minutes from Gibraltar, the crew could actually see the rock. A massive explosion ripped open a section of the starboard side, between the fuel bunks and bomb store. In other words, right below the bridge. If a moment of lightheartedness will be tolerated at a moment like this, just as the explosion went off, the last swordfish pilot named Berg was landing on the Ark. Now, before they had gone up, Lieutenant Philip D.P. Gick had torn into Berg and the others because they were landing their planes too hard. So as his plane landed and the entire carrier shook from the blast, Berg looked around and said, My God, what have I done this time? Seconds after the explosion, smoke was everywhere and the carrier instantly listed to starboard. As no one had spotted the attacking sub's periscope, the arc was doing 18 knots. So between the carrier's speed and the torpedo's explosion, there was soon a 130 by 30-foot gash in the ship, and it was determined that the torpedo had penetrated deep before exploding. Ironically, given the blast, only one man died from it, Abel Seaman E. Mitchell. Right away, the starboard boiler room, main switchboard, oil tanks, and over 106 feet of the starboard bilge, which pumps out unwanted water, were flooded. This caused the rear half of the ship to lose power and communications, and it was this latter part that was its own catastrophe. At the moment, Lieutenant Commander Hector C.D. McLean was on the bridge. Captain Loben Mond was in his cabin. As communications were down, it took a minute to figure out that they had been struck from below, probably a magnetic warhead. 
Right after the explosion, the Ark Royal listed 10 degrees. The captain now on the bridge ordered, reverse the engines, but was unable to contact any other part of the ship. Hence, the captain ran to the engine control room and gave the order to halt. But by the time the ship came to a stop, its momentum had increased the size of the tear. With that done, it was time to deal with the list. So Captain Mond told the crew to flood the port compartments and to pump fuel from the starboard to the port tanks. Hopefully, this would somewhat right the ship. It did not. With that underway, Mond had his men stand in a line between the engine control room and the flight deck. This would be his communications chain until telephones could be reestablished. As for the planes, the main reason to have a carrier, those that had landed were unable to take off now. Those yet to land were ordered to make for Gibraltar. As for the destroyers, they had already gathered around the wounded Ark, should another torpedo attack be launched. Despite the captain's orders and the crew's attempts, by 4 p.m. the list was just over 18 degrees and continuing. Fearing her capsizing, the captain ordered the ratings on deck to get as many men off the ship as possible. The rest would stay behind and try to save her. As the men began to line up on deck, the destroyer Legion came alongside. A rope was thrown across. The sailors were expected to go across the rope upside down, one hand over the other. And as the list increased, none of the men currently on the rope could move fast enough to satisfy those still yet to touch the rope. With the list getting worse, the men soon replaced the hand-over-hand method with simply sliding down the deck to get to the destroyer. Clearly, there was to be no salvation for the Ark Royal. Captain Mond was the last man to leave the carrier. Off of the Ark Royal came 1,540 officers and ratings, and as the paymaster was seen holding two suitcases and each had 10,000 pounds in it, the men cheered. Further, canaries, not sure whose, were released from their cages, and the ship's cats were carried over by a marine. Every crew member except the deceased Mitchell was safe. At 6.13 a.m. November 14th, the Ark Royal turned all the way over. Her bottom, now her top. She stayed visible for a few minutes, but then went below for the last time. Word of the loss of the Ark Royal shocked London, but it also shocked those who heard it in Berlin, as the government there had already claimed several times to have sunk the Ark Royal. This time, it was true, and the only way to get the German people to believe it was when the Ministry of Propaganda quoted the British Admiralty. Postscript. A board of inquiry court-martialed Captain Loben Mond, but did acknowledge his main concern had been for his crew. Meanwhile, another committee that investigated the loss of major ships said that the lack of a backup power source was the main culprit here. The captain or crew were helpless once power went out. These design flaws, as they were categorized, were rectified in the illustrious and implacable class carriers already under construction. The shattered remains of the Ark Royal was found in December of 2002 by C&C Technologies. 
The Ark Royal was found 30 nautical miles, that is, 35 miles or 56 kilometers, from Gibraltar at about 1,000 meters depth.